Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. On today's show, number 82, we're looking at nutritional research. How do we know what we know about what humans should be eating? And where are the gaps in that knowledge? Because today's guest, Susan Levin, works for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. She's the Director of Nutrition Education, and she has the job of letting us know, the rest of the world, what PCRM is discovering through its clinical trials. And clinical trials means you take a bunch of people, usually who are sick, and you do an intervention on them, and you see what happens. And the research that PCRM has done on things like diabetes, dementia, heart disease, is really interesting. And it's not very well known. And they're one of the few organizations out there that is really tackling this missing piece between population studies where we just go and look at, say, the Okinawans or uh, the Seventh-day Adventists from Loma Linda. And we just say, well, they do these things. So maybe we should do them too, which is very suggestive, but not necessarily proof. And the other type of study, which is very, very reductionist chemical assays where we give um, isolated nutrients to lab animals or ultimately to people in the form of, of pills and supplements, and we see what happens. And PCRM is doing a great job of bridging that and, and creating very clever, very uh, pointed studies that help us understand the effects of diet on the diseases that really matter the most, that really will take the most lives, will cause the most suffering, the most misery. So without further ado, Susan Levin, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for asking me to uh, to attend. Yeah, well, I knew I had to have you on after I heard you speak um, last month at the, the Wellness Forum uh, fall event, and you have such a handle on the research, and not just the research that we can read about in books, but you're, you're sort of like the internet of research. You're, you're telling us research that is just being done right now, research that hasn't been published yet, research that's ongoing, some research that you guys decided that the... Um, the study design wasn't good enough, and so you went back to the drawing board, like really sort of cutting edge. It felt like um, current events as opposed to to history in terms of nutritional research. Yeah, well, you know, nutrition science is fairly fairly new re- uh, science, um, and it's exciting because I actually have a job that pays me to troll around on the internet and through papers and different media outlets to see what are people saying, why are they saying it, and how well-referenced and evidence-based is the information that's getting out to the public, which then brings me maybe to the to the less exciting read, which is a, a lot of um, medical journals and seeing everything that we hear about health and nutrition among other areas of science, um, you, you should be able to trace back to some peer-reviewed journal and see exactly where that um, theory is coming from. So it's, it's, it's not only exciting to read what's in the news, but to be able to, like a detective, go back and find the researchers, the research, the publication, and see just, you know, just how accurate um, did the chain of events bring you to a story like to source 
and then what the media says. It's kind of fast. It's fascinating all over the place. Yeah, and in my experience, it would it would be a lot less fascinating if it were better done. <laughs> if you could go and like see the article, <laughs> see the newspaper report or the TV uh, story, and then trace it back and see that actually that's what the study said and it was a good study. But th- we we see that very rarely, don't we? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's true, too, right? Like, what makes it fascinating is a little bit of uh, what raises your eyebrow. Like, how did they come to that conclusion from that study? I mean, it really is like that game you play when you're a kid called telephone, where you whisper a message into somebody's ear and it goes around, and by the time it comes back around, it's a completely different story. But I think you also have the media sensationalizing a lot, trying to make it interesting to the public and you know, let's face it, medical journals aren't always the most interesting read. But um, but unfortunately, it seems a lot of that information is dangerous. It's not just um, fun stories. It's not telephone. <laughs> this is your life, really, is what it is. So you want that information to be as accurate as possible, even if it is um, a little bit boring. I just, I just had a thought, which is I, I used to teach in an elementary school, and you know, that was a fun game we used to play with the kids from time to time. And there was always one kid, and it was always a boy, who whenever something hmm. whispered in his ear, he would end up and he would turn around and, and say something like "poopy pants" to the next kid. <laughs> and that's kind, yeah, that's kind of like a good analog for sensationalism. Like, you yeah, know, he's he, ready for TV news. That's good. <laughs> he just he just wanted the attention, wanted the eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and there's, you can blame, you can blame media, you can blame public attention span. Um, but, but my job ultimately is to try to, uh, bring attention to the facts and the actual evidence and what the research says, um, which, you know, requires a lot of flailing your arms around and may not be as interesting as the news story, but here at the Physicians Committee, we try to make it interesting. We try to make it, not just palatable and layperson friendly, but um, maybe even a little throw in a little humor sometimes or controversy sometimes to get people's attention to the facts. Right. So uh, I want to get into the facts and, and your work. Um, but first, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Um, so I find it, it helps people to, you know, cause there's, there's so many people telling so many different stories. It's very helpful to kind of get a grasp on who the person is, what their background is, what their values are, and should I trust them? So that, that's why it may, no, it, oh may, it may not seem totally relevant, but you know, there's a lot of people who don't really withstand that kind of scrutiny. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I understand. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, well, I, well, I said you, you went to Bastyr University for a, um, uh, to become a, a registered dietitian. Um, I guess Bastyr is known for being very plant-friendly. Was that your experience? Yeah, that's, well, that's exactly why I went there. I, um, I, this is tw- oh, 20 years ago now, decided that after having adopted a totally plant-based diet, a vegan diet, um, and seeing how my health and body changed and improved while living among people who were very sick because of their diets, whether it's my family. And I was raised in the deep south in Alabama, so we had um, 
kind of your what you would expect with a lot of obesity, overweight, diabetes, um, heart disease in my family, and and I saw how they ate and then just live. I was living in New York City uh, when I went back to start the graduate school process, and everyone around me was on antidepressants or. Um, gastric like pills for digestive problems and so why don't you just change your diet change you know and uh, I realized at that point no one really wanted to listen to me just because I was vegan it's like well what do you know about nutrition so I took that to heart and I felt so passionately about how much better life can be when you eat a plant-based diet that I was going to change my whole career path which had been journalism and go back to school. So I started in New York City at Hunter College, which is just a city university, taking all my prerequisites so I could apply to grad school. And then when I was looking at grad schools, um, I was a little uh, prideful. Like, I don't want to go just to uh, a mainstream grad school that's going to tell me, you know, what the government tells me to eat or um, what everyone assumes you need to, to consume which would inevitably probably include, you know, chicken, fish, and dairy, things I didn't believe we needed, nor could I find any research to support it. And then I found Bastyr in Seattle, so across the country. I wasn't particularly interested in moving across the country, but I really wanted to go somewhere that would be supportive of my beliefs, and they did purport to be a whole foods, plant-based nutrition program, so I got into that school and I moved to Seattle, grad school for two years and uh, my dietetic internship over there. So so flash, fast forward six years, I have my master's of science, my registered dietitian credentials. Um, and then I started telling people and and using my credentials as a way of hopefully gaining some more trust as someone who came out of the mainstream system and still believed you don't need to consume dairy products, you don't want to need to consume uh, meat products or animal products, and not only do you not need it, you will benefit greatly by avoiding them altogether. Um, so that's the path I chose. It was pretty, outside of going to best year, which is a little bit, although accredited, a little bit alternative, um, we still had to follow the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics um, rules and regulations. You have to take a certain amount of hours and in a certain amount of work. I had to work in a regular hospital and in a regular industrial-sized kitchen. I worked at WIC. I worked at a diabetes center. So um, I saw it. I saw it all. I wasn't in a bubble the whole time. And I still know and I continue to learn every day that this this is the right way. This is where all the science leads. It leads to plant-based eating for prevention and disease reversal. So I'd love to back up to from Alabama to vegan. <laughs> yeah. So that sounds like a country song. <laughs> yeah, or, or I guess the country song would go the other way, right? That's true. <laughs> right, depending. So <laughs> So you, so you you grew up in a family or in, a, in, a, in an environment that had a lot of these you know diseases of, of dietary excess. Was that your family and was that you? Were you you know? Sure. I mean, I was on the I was on the path. I was pro probably too young to manifest much of a problem, but um, I was 
overweight and, and just generally speaking, didn't know what healthful food looked like, didn't know what a balanced diet looked like. My mother didn't know. Her mother didn't know. So it, it it's not blaming anyone. It's just that there's literally no knowledge about what, I mean, from, from their perspective, like here's your, you know, your meat is at the center of your plate. Um, you have this iceberg lettuce salad with ranch dressing. There's your vegetable um, and maybe bread or potato on the side, which obviously would be the healthiest part of the meal. But to to go from that, and every person in my family was constantly on a diet to no to no avail, and um, and people died of heart disease. They died of um, uh, strokes, high blood pressure, and had diabetes. And you know there'd be a a memorial or a funeral service where everyone comes over and brings ham and and macaroni salad and it's like it just it so perpetuates itself it's such a vicious cycle um but it wasn't until I was in college in North Carolina actually in Chapel Hill where I started to be more conscious of what I was eating and the chemicals in the food um changing my diet and just becoming kind of a label reader not a health nut per se, but just um, someone who is looking to not struggle or think. I didn't want to think about my weight and my health. I wanted to just eat. And I realized, well, you can do that if you're eating the right foods. It becomes more about quality than quantity. Um, so taking making that decision in college and then eventually realizing the more you read, like, I don't think I want to eat meat products anymore and cutting that out and um, – and then realizing, I don't think I want to eat dairy or eggs either, and cutting that out, and then just having amazing things happen to your body. But at the same time, adding in all these amazing foods that, that just weren't a part of my life up until that point, all these beans, uh, different variety of legumes and lentils and grains, like, oh, there's there's life outside of wheat, there's rice, brown rice, there's quinoa and amaranth and millet, um, so learning about all those kinds of foods and, of course, as many vegetables and whole fruits as you can eat, um, it just it just opens up your eyes so much. And then you just eat and, you know, and you're healthy and it's it takes off a huge burden um, in your life. You never have to think about, uh, am I getting enough vitamins and getting my minerals and vitamins and am I overeating, am I undereating? You're you're just living. You're like the animals that walk around in forests who just forage for food and don't count calories. They just innately know what to do. And if you're eating the right foods, I think that happens to humans as well. Were there particular influences or people or, or experiences that you had in Chapel Hill that got you to see that normal wasn't really normal because most you know, most people um, most people grow up with with all these things you described and they never mm-hmm. think about oh there's another way you know i think well being in chapel hill which for people who've never been is it's fairly liberal town pretty progressive in north carolina and um i would say for me it was more of a raised consciousness about the environment, about uh, factory farming that sort of brought me to, um, and then working in the food industry, I I waited tables and worked in bagel shops and and whatnot, and just seeing the ingredients and the um, methods of cooking and just kind of becoming aware more of what's real food and what's not real food. 
um, and then some great co-ops and farmers markets too that are, that were pretty influential. But I think it was the um, more the some of the environmental and ethical issues that triggered. Oh, I don't think I want to eat meat anymore. Um, not really thinking much about my health. I mean, although obviously a little bit, but 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 it was the giving of the dairy products. It was that next step, and 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 you're pretty well supported in a community like Chapel Hill to give up um, to be completely vegetarian or vegan because there's so many options. So that probably helped a lot. But um, but once I gave up the dairy products, that's when I, all these changes really started to manifest in terms of weight. Um, energy level, skin. So that's when I was like, oh, <laughs> now I see how a plant-based diet can really benefit your health. And that's what triggered my um, willingness to go into an incredible amount of um, debt and <laughs> go back to school and start over in the sciences and, and become a registered dietitian. So, so I see from your bio that you spent time in Beijing teaching English to um, biomedical English majors. Um, what, how, how did that, uh, first of all, what was that like? And how did, th- did that play in at all to, um, to your journey around plant-based um, research and education? Well, I had the, so I had just taken my um, finished grad school and my dietetic internship and taking my exam. So I was officially an RD, but I had this opportunity to go to China. Um, and so I applied for a job at, at what, what's called Peking University and to teach English, but it was in the sciences. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And I got the job and they housed me and I am in no way proficient in in Mandarin or <laughs> nor, nor can I read characters, but um, couldn't really pass up this opportunity. So uh, that's why I went and it, it was eye-opening for a million reasons. But in terms of nutrition, um, what I was witnessing was a, a little disturbing. I mean, you're, you're literally, the thing about China is things happen so fast. You can literally stand on the sidewalk and watch a culture seemingly just change overnight. So I'm watching fast food outlets um, open up and I'm watching kids. I was teaching college kids, quote unquote, watching them start to drink more milk, for example, which is completely not part of the Chinese culture. And, um, and, and it's disturbing because they also suffer higher rates of lactose intolerance and I would ask my students like why are you drinking milk like it can't possibly be part of your family's tradition oh no but the government tells me I should be drinking milk and eating meat because then we can be big and strong like like westerners and it's like you know yeah you can be fat and sick like westerners if you do that so it was it was very interesting to watch um how the western diet infiltrated uh, the country and the consciousness of these um, of this population that traditionally had such a healthy diet, and I would try to impart that upon them in my different lectures um, because they would have me do special lectures just on my expertise in different areas to staff and students. 
and I would try to bring that up a lot. Like, you know, you guys have traditionally a very helpful dietary pattern. Don't ruin it. Like, look, how do your grandparents eat? Keep doing that. Don't do what Americans or Westerners do because we are in bad, bad, bad shape. And China, given its huge population and its government, you know, its healthcare is government supported. It's a communist country. How are they going to afford to have X percent of its population suffering from a very expensive disease like diabetes, which is exactly what's happening in China? Uh, so it, it was interesting, and I'm hopeful that they they turn themselves around before they find themselves in the same boat we are. What, what, what were some of the um, objections and responses that you heard when you said, why, why are you taking on this uh, unhealthy diet? What, what did they say in response? Well, it's it, because it's it's sort of government, it's encouraged by the government to eat a certain way. And it's it's a little bit different than America. I mean, yes, our government is very influential, whether we know it or not, um, in, in what we choose to eat, directly and indirectly. They're... There's not a whole lot of questioning what the government says. It's just like, well, the government tells me to drink milk. I'm going to drink milk. There's not, um, there's not a lot of uh, questioning of that information. So I would try to question it, but that's not, you know, doing that in China is not very popular. Um, so I think that's going to be a huge obstacle. I think you're going to have to kind of work from the top down, convince the government that they're making a huge mistake uh, that's going to cost them loads and loads of money uh, to in, to have a population of people who are sick and overweight. Um, it's very expensive to have diabetes. It's very expensive to have bypass surgery. So hopefully at some point, money will talk for them. Wow. I'd love to sort of put put that thought in the parking lot and come back to it when we talk about your work with, uh, with PCRM, because it seems like mm-hmm. it, there are some analogies to how people in the United States think about food, like, well, the government taught me this, but there's, it seems like there's a lot more personal autonomy and choice, and it seems like PCRM is trying to work both sides from policy to, <clears throat> to excuse me, to education. Sure. So, you, I mean, you, we have to recognize that we can't ignore what the government is doing and just... Um, and just contradict them and say, don't listen to the government. They don't know what they're talking about. But because they do set the blueprint for for a lot of, for all federal food policy, that in, that whether we like it or not, influences how much food costs. It influences what's on a tray in a school lunch. Um, it influences what's being fed to people in um, some retirement homes, uh, hospitals, and um prisons, uh, uh, among the Native American reservations, what, what kind of food gets dumped by the government there, um, our WIC programs, our food stamps. So government is, food is everywhere. And while you may be in a privileged position to, to poo-poo that and say, no, you know, I'm going to go off and do my own thing. There are millions and millions of people that don't have that kind of choice. So, we want the government to focus more on science and less on industry. And the challenge, of course, is that the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, is in charge 
of our dietary recommendations and dietary guidelines, yet they were created and they continue to work towards the promotion of agricultural products like meat and dairy. So they have a conflict of interest within their own organization that they have to kind of try to figure out and battle. Um, and we're, we're here to sort of make sure they're accountable to the science and, and more so than industry. And that's hard because that's not, it's not why they were created. Um, they were created to support agriculture. So it's, it's a big, um, challenge, but it has to be done because if you just let them do, uh, if you let them go, go, go unchecked, we will continue to have four, we would still have four food groups that are meat, dairy, number two, fruits and vegetables, number three, and grains, number four. And that's just completely unacceptable. And thankfully, we've moved um, light years away from that kind of advice. However, we're still dealing with a lot of uh, industry influence. Mm. So t- tell me what you do at PCRM. Uh, what What is your scope of responsibilities and what are some of the highlights of the things you've been involved in? Yeah, so we'll, we'll stay on the same subject matter. Um, right now, the USDA and the Department of Health are both updating the, they come together every five years and update the dietary guidelines. Again, the blueprint for all federal food programs. So we're staying on top of that and making sure that, again, they don't get mired in the industry and focus on the science. We want to see those guidelines be um, as evidence-based as possible, uh, and those will come out in 2015 sometime. And while most Americans will never look at it, that's fine, just believe that that really has a huge role in what is recommended to people to eat, as well as, again, what appears on trays, lunch lines in schools and, and other federal outlets. So um, g- give us an example. For, so the, the current guidelines, like what's what are a couple of things that make total sense and what's a couple of things that are just egregiously opposed to mm-hmm. what, what the science says? Yeah, so they, they're, the guidelines are very safe. They, they don't want to make industry angry, um, but they also don't want to look like they've been completely bought and paid for. So what you see a lot of is eat more fruit, eat more vegetables, um, make half your plate fruits and vegetables. Uh, So they're very willing to say what you should be doing. What they're terrified of saying is what you shouldn't be doing, what you shouldn't be eating. So they really do avoid language like eat, don't eat this, don't eat that, um, because they'll really anger a lot of industry. So what they do is use um, sort of this subversive coded language of eat less saturated fat, consume less cholesterol, consume fewer solid fats, which is a completely made up term, but whatever. And then if you flip around in the guidelines, you'll find a pie chart that tells you the number one sources of saturated fat and the number one sources of solid fats. And of course, they're animal products with dairy being the number one source of saturated fat in the American diet. Um, So you kind of have to piece it together yourself because they're not going to say what you shouldn't be eating. Um, They won't say eat less meat because that will get them in trouble as well. But again, if you go through all the jump through all the hoops, you see, oh, meat is a 
major source of saturated solid fats and cholesterol and sodium, which we're supposed to be consuming um, less of as well. So it's, it's just not, it could really improve a lot by being more clear because Americans don't go to the grocery store and shop for saturated fat. You know, they shop for meat and they shop for cheese. And if you say eat less meat, eat less cheese, that's a whole lot more helpful than eat less solid fat and saturated fat to most people out there. So I would hope they would be a little more transparent and clear because it's obvious to me and to the rest of the nutrition world that people don't understand what they're supposed to be not eating. I think we all get we're supposed to be eating more fruits and vegetables, but we really need the the clearer language around what we're supposed to avoid. Mm-hmm. So the the side that wants us to keep eating, you know, meat and dairy and even, you know, candy bars and sodas, they do science too, or they do something that looks like science. And they publish, mm-hmm. they publish things in, in, in journals that look like scientific publications. And to most people, and, and quite honestly, to me, a lot of the time, I can't really tell the difference. Um, is, is that something that you, that you look at to see what are the systematic differences between real science and this sort of you know, marketing disguised as science? Yeah, I think you have to, um, you do have to look, go back to the original research and ask a few questions about it. Like funding is certainly an interesting question, so that can be very telling. But you want to look at um, how big is the study, how long is the study, how diverse um, is, is the is what the media saying, what the study actually, the conclusion that the study actually came to. Um, I mean, there's a lot of research is interesting. Like you can really, you could really pick it apart on a, on a lot of different levels. Um, and in the end, you, you, the conclusion may be absolutely right. Like, yes, among these 12 people who did this and after you accounted for their weight and other calories, there was no risk when they consumed, you know, something that you would common sense would tell you you shouldn't be consuming. Um, you just kind of have to factor in, well, like, well, yeah, if you do all that, <laughs> then maybe it looks safe. But, but what you have to remember and what most health organizations do keep in mind is the preponderance of evidence. Like, for example, saturated fat. There was a study recently that said saturated fat um, didn't seem to cause or increase one's risk of heart disease. But if you really looked at the studies that were referenced in that study, because it was a review of many studies uh, or several studies, um, it it wasn't an exact uh, reflection of what those studies had showed. It, it more showed that if you consume a lot of saturated fat and then you consume even more, your risk doesn't go up. It's like, okay, well, that I could see that. If I already consume... Um, 20% of my calories from saturated fat, and then I consume 30% of my calories from saturated fat. My my increased consumption of saturated fat did not affect my heart. It's like, well, yeah, because your heart is already completely screwed by the, by the amount you ate at the beginning of the study. So, so there was a like, lot of that. It's like of, if you're going to jump off of a 12-story building, it's not a problem to jump off the 17th floor. The same, you won't, you won't, exactly. do, you won't, you won't do any more damage. 
Right. But the conclusion, of course, is the higher you jump, there's no increased risk of death or something. It's like, well, really? But if you go, if you look. So so we're not looking at people who are climbing out of the first story window and doing fine. Right. Or I think someone else had mentioned, you know, if you get shot in the heart once versus shot in the heart 10 times, are you more likely, you know, do you die more? No, you're, you're already in a bad way with the first shot. But versus groups that are already healthy and eat minimal amounts of saturated fat, when they increase their saturated fat intake, their risk for heart disease um, goes up significantly. But, but that kind of gets lost in the, when you put all these, pool all these studies together, those kind of cancel each other out, and then you're left with, um, oh, there must be no risk. Because these people had great risk, these people had no risk, equals zero risk. Um, so you have to really analyze the studies, and that's tedious, and most people don't really want to do that, but that's that's my job. And, um, and I think it's kind of fun, but it's hard, because people love to hear good news about a bad idea. I think that's a, I'm paraphrasing Dr. McDougall there, but um, so when you say eat, hey, you can eat butter and everything's honky dory, that's much more fun of a headline than, nope, sorry, saturated fat is still really bad for your heart and bad for your body. Um, That's not going to make a big headline. Hmm. So I guess one of the differences between you and me is that when I see a terrible study like the saturated fat study, I can I can go and like do PowerPoint presentations and explain to people why this was a terribly done study. You can actually go and do your own research, right? With PCRM, you you guys actually um, do studies that that look for the truth. Yeah, so we do a couple of different types of research, mostly and and. Probably um, uniquely, we do randomized controlled trials. So we are in a situation, thankfully, where we can bring people into our clinic or into our offices and randomize them into a low-fat plant-based eating pattern and then some kind of control group, which we've done for decades now. Um, and, and we've done it with weight loss, we've done it with PMS, we've done it with diabetes, we've done it with um, migraines and joint pain and, and neuropathy. So in the control diet, always kind of depends on the, the group that we're looking at. But um, So that's been amazing because it is important to get randomized controlled trials published. It's considered the gold standard, but it's, um, it's not easy to do because you're trying to change people's dietary habits for some set amount of time and you can't completely control people unless you lock them into your facility, which would be a way more expensive kind of a study that we're not going to be doing. But, um, but what we found over and over again is no matter what that control diet is, even if it's a really good diet, like um, a diet that cuts back on fat and uh, leads to weight loss and better blood sugar control for people with type 2 diabetes, nothing beats a low-fat plant-based diet. And by low-fat, I mean we're not, we're not allowing, you know, a lot of oils and um, peanut butter and so plant foods for sure, but plant foods that are whole 
fruits, vegetables, beans, and grains, all you want, unlimited. And people love that. Like, what do you mean unlimited? It's like, I mean unlimited. You can eat as much as you want, uh, which they've never heard before if they've been struggling with weight or diabetes. So it's always very exciting to see people's eyes like, really? I could eat the biggest bowl of beans and rice, um, red beans and rice that I want. I can have potatoes and pasta. Yes, yes, yes. Well, how much? Well, as much as you want until you're full. And all these foods are so full of fiber, which which are displacing all those foods that are so high in fat, that they literally can't bring themselves to overeat the calories because you're just too full. And of course, you don't digest fiber, so those calories that they did consume come come out. The fiber comes back back out. Um, so they come in a week, two, three weeks later, um, feel like, well, I didn't lose any weight because I'm full all the time. And they lose, you know, a pound, two pounds, three pounds a week, um, and they can't believe it. It's like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, yeah, you're eating really healthful foods, and if you eat like this, you don't have to portion control. You don't have to count calories. It just works. Um, so that's always really exciting. And then we're also able to do sit down and look at all these studies that are already published and kind of review them and analyze them and publish our own reviews um, and our own meta-analyses or systematic reviews of the stuff that's already been published and try to figure out, again, what does the preponderance of evidence tell us about certain diets and disease? So let's talk a little bit about these randomized controlled clinical trials. And so, you know, one of the the criticisms in the sort of the scientific debate is that the mm-hmm. plant-based movement is all based on, uh, cor- you know, um, correlational evidence. So, you know, so as, as, as great as the China mm-hmm. study was, it didn't prove anything because it wasn't a prospective randomized controlled clinical trial. And then, you know, and of course, the trouble with randomized controlled clinical trials is that you can't force people to do these extreme things, and it's very expensive to get enough people in the trial. So the, so the trials that we've seen tend to be sponsored by really, you know, rich industries, um, and they, they set it up as the way you described earlier, so that they, they um, you know, c- create the conditions whereby their food doesn't look so bad, or it even may in certain cases look good. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you get, you guys are kind of fighting fire with fire by creating what they can, what the other side considers to be the gold standard. And yet including dietary patterns that most people would think, Oh, that's too extreme. No one will do that. So how, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you find people and how do you get them to as best you can comply with, you know, what looks to the rest of the world like a crazy diet. <laughs> well, because when you actually do the diet, I'm, I'll start backwards. When you actually do the diet, um, it's not so crazy. And it's it's easier when you're in a trial for sure because you've, obviously your motivation is a little higher because you have X condition which has made you eligible for the trial. So let's say it's type 2 diabetes. People who um, want to be in our studies. So we have, you know, people call, we, we solicit, we're doing this clinical trial. Um, we get hundreds of phone calls and, and we, we have criteria for how you qualify. But um, these people are extra motivated. They have a disease. They have type 2 diabetes. Most of them have 
struggled with it, like what they're doing isn't working because what they're doing and what the medical world will tell you is the only thing you can expect with diabetes is to, the best you can hope for is a slow progression of the disease. Um, and you manage that with medication and you try to minimize medication and, and raise it only as needed as you, as the disease progresses. And that's kind of it. Like that's what doctors are taught that in nurses and dietitians. That's the best you can hope for is just minimizing the speed at which this disease takes over your body. Um, but we found, and that's the bad news. Most people don't want to take a dozen medications every day. And that's what diabetes is ultimately is you start on one pill and then you take another pill and you take a pill for the side effects of those pills plus the pill that still manages how bad your diabetes is getting. Um, and, oh, and now you have nerve pain or you need a pill for that. Um, maybe surgery because you need uh, some kind of amputation because of the nerve, the damage has been done from, from the numbness and the nerve pain. Um, your kidneys are starting to fail. So it's, it's so bad and people know what's coming and whether they are experiencing some of that nerve pain already or vision loss. Um, so when they call us, it's like, hmm, I will do anything to stop this because what I'm doing now, what's being prescribed to me is not helping. Um, so that's pretty high motivation. And then they come in and like I said, when you're told after being told for years to count your carbs, don't eat fruit, um, prick your finger every day, uh, come back in a month and we'll see what other drugs you need to be on. When that's what all you've been hearing and suddenly you're being told, yeah, eat this food, eat as much as you want. Um, your blood sugar is probably going to start to drop, so you need to stay in close contact with us and your physician. Like these are these are pretty big motivators, and it makes the diet seem the opposite of extreme. It makes it seem like a treasure chest. Like, what do you mean my blood sugars are going to start to drop? I'm going to have to lower my medication. I might have to get off my medication, eat all I want. Um, that's, those are pretty pretty good uh, pretty good things to hear when you have diabetes. So we don't find a lot of pushback. Yeah, it's a it's an educational process, especially for people who eat out and travel a lot. It's like, well, how do I do this? How do I do that? And they learn. Um, but it's just it's really exciting to watch it happen. Wow. So so just to put this in perspective, you've got a diet that does what no other diet does. You have documentation that it, in some percentage, and I'm not, we can talk about what percentage it is, of, of the enrollees in your study, it um, stops the progression of diabetes. In a certain percentage, it reverses the effects of diabetes. Mm -hmm. In a certain percentage, it makes the diabetes go away or look like it's gone away mm -hmm. or, no, or no longer manifest in any regard. Now, that's not just different from any diet. That's actually different from anything, any treatment, any drug, any protocol, any uh, post-hypnotic suggestion. The, the, right. you, you, you have ironclad documented evidence of human beings applying a dietary shift and curing something that has never been cured before. Is that what I'm hearing? That's right. I mean, we don't say your diabetes is cured, but what someone might go to their um, doctor, endocrinologist after the trial 
And that physician would say, you have no signs of diabetes. Like if I didn't know your history, I wouldn't know you had ever had diabetes. Um, you don't stop monitoring that person and uh, say, you're cured. You, you know, <laughs> you never need to come back yet. We're not, we're not there yet. But um, as it stands, yeah, people get off, lower their medications, possibly get off of all of their medications, um, have no signs, have no clinical signs that they even have diabetes other than their chart that shows, you know, at one point you did. Um, so you always want to be careful because they might, there are obviously people who can get diabetes and you want to make sure they stay on the right path. Uh, it doesn't mean they can quit and, and go back to their old habits and maybe they'll have a shot at not um, having diabetes again. I mean, maybe, but doubtful. So you still want to make sure people are diligent um, and understand they are at high risk. But yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's not what people, healthcare professionals are taught in school at all. Um, but they should be. At least the option should be presented to the patient, right? Like, you could do this, or you could do this, or you could do this. Like, just give them the option as opposed to the assumption that, well, you have the first stages of diabetes. Let's get you on some drugs. Um, let me teach you about how bad carbs are uh, so that we can minimize the damage. Uh, it, that's just, to me, that's cruel if we know something works better. So, so I'm, I'm imagining that, of course, the American Diabetic Association lists your recommend, diet recommendations as a first line of, uh, of treatment for, for its members and member families uh, who are dealing with diabetes, right? Well, they list our diet, among others, as a, an effective way to treat diabetes. We think the language needs to be stronger because we don't see it as being um, in the same ballpark as uh, something like a Mediterranean diet. Um, we see this as working much, much better, and we have the proof. So uh, we'd like to see stronger language supporting plant-based eating. So we're still working on that. But, yes, they do, they do acknowledge, because of our research, that it is an effective way to manage diabetes. So, but, I mean, do you guys have, like, backroom back channel conversations with them and say, look, show me, show me the evidence that, you know, it's like saying, you know, here's, here's four denominations of, of money. Here's a penny, a nickel, a quarter, and a hundred dollar bill. They'll all work if you want to go buy food. You know, do you, right. do you ever say to right. them, like, where's your evidence that, that anything other than something close to, to what we recommend is effective? We do. We have, because we have um, people on staff who are members and are longtime members of the American Diabetes Association and um, and diabetes educators, dietitians, and nurses. They work continuously with their respective organizations to try to update that science. Um, so it's not, and we're con. Uh, continuously invited to conferences to talk about plant-based eating. So it's good. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we will continue to point out how strong the evidence is for plant-based eating, especially vegan diets versus some of the other, especially the long-term effects of our, our diet program, as opposed to some of these short-term effects you might see with say low-carb diets that are high in protein. Um, 
where they have short-term positive outcomes for blood glucose, but long-term harmful effects for things like heart disease and cancer risk. So we try to point that out. Um, But as you mentioned earlier, uh, because a lot of times it's brought into question is this cause and effect. Well, we don't know that the cause was the the animal were the animal products. And you're right, what you said is right, because you can't do a trial. You for example, we all pretty much know that smoking leads to lung cancer. However, it would be totally unethical to actually have a trial that had people smoking until they got lung cancer. So it's not like we've ever had a cause and effect trial to prove smoking causes lung cancer. We just sort of look at the population and say, oh, yeah, smoking causes cancer. This seems pretty clear, but we would never do a, an intervention trial to prove it because it would be unethical. And the same with meat. You would never feed a bunch of people red meat or meat or whatever and see um, and wait for them to get cancer because we know that's putting them at risk for something bad and it would be unethical. So we're always going to have to live with well, how do we know that that's really, how do we know cigarettes really cause lung cancer? And how do we know um, red meat really causes colon cancer? It's like, well, because we have so many population studies, at some point you just have to sort of go down the safe and obvious route um, without the randomized control trial. Right. Well, I think of it in terms of, you know, good good gamblers. Like, you're, yeah, you're always going to bet the the cards could come up you know, four aces for for the guy across the table. But if you just, if you play the odds, you're, you know, mm-hmm. and you know what the odds are and you play them, you're better than almost everyone else at the table. Right. So, right. So we'll, we'll, we'll always run up against this sort of, well, you just never know and you never, yeah, I, it's like, we know, we know. There's so much uh, evidence about dietary patterns and who suffers the most and who doesn't. Same with, Dr. Campbell's work in China, it's um, how, much, how much more do you need? Like you really need me to go in and um, feed people a bunch of toxic food until they get cancer to prove to you what it seems like an overwhelming amount of people um, getting that cancer and what their habits are. And, and then, of course, the people who eat well, you know, plant-based eating, who don't have these. I mean, it just let's just think of it in terms of dietary patterns and how, how much better people do when they follow a certain pattern versus another pattern. So you talked about diabetes and I know, uh, Dr. Barnard, the, the like she's the founder and director of PCRM That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, has a book about reversing diabe- uh, diabetes through a plant-based diet. What are some of the other conditions, diseases that you have that you would feel comfortable as a researcher saying we have equally strong evidence um, based on clinical trials, not just correlation, mm-hmm. not just on wishful thinking. What, what do we have evidence as good or nearly as good as, as with diabetes? Yeah, so heart disease. Um, we've seen with Dr. Dean Ornish and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn that you can reverse heart disease, which um, was actually the impetus for uh, Dr. Barnard seeing like what happens 
in the Ornish trials, for example, people's insulin sensitivity got better, and that's how it triggered the notion, oh, there's something with diabetes too. But um, heart disease, of course, plenty of published research about uh, reversing the plaque buildup in your arteries just by changing your lifestyle. Um, with the Ornish program, with Dr. Esselstyn's published research, um, and then, yes, you still have population studies to show to show the same, but I just think it's, you can't even dispute that that is going to work for heart disease. And what's so amazing about that is this is the disease that kills us the most. We mostly die from heart disease in this country. And if not suffer, you know, like who does it, who isn't on a cholesterol lowering medication? Who doesn't have high blood pressure? Um, who doesn't have plaque in their arteries? Uh, who doesn't have chest pain after a certain age? Um, why? If we know that we can eat in a way that actually reverses all that, why aren't we? Or why don't people know that? Why aren't doctors insisting that their patients do that? Um, t- to me, it's just as unbelievable as the research with diabetes. It's like, oh my gosh, this doesn't have to be the demon that it is in this country. It can be completely reversed. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask about um, diseases of uh, of cognition, I guess Alzheimer's and other forms mm-hmm. of dementia. Because I, I know a lot of people who, okay, they've got high blood pressure, they can handle that with meds, they're going to die of a heart attack at some point, they could live with that. But the thought of being a burden, of being confused, like that really gets them. Like, no, I don't know anyone mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people like James Dean, you know, like live fast, die young. I don't know anyone who wants to um, be, be in a, a demented state for 5, 10, 15 years, requiring huge amounts of resources just to keep them alive and comfortable. So is, what, what's, what's the, what is uh, Dr. Barnard and, and all the researchers found about the link between diet and dementia? Yeah, so... What we do know with Alzheimer's for sure is that there's no cure. Um, And that to me, and and what struck me the most about some of the leading researchers in uh, dementia and Alzheimer's research, um, to hear them say how much they regret that all the money is kind of going into trying to find this miracle cure with a drug. So a lot of drug money. being spent on Alzheimer's research. While we know there's actually some things that prevent Alzheimer's, um, and they would argue that it's pretty indisputable that components in food products like saturated fat will raise your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Trans fats will raise your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, There are some minerals that we may be over-consuming, like copper, uh, that could contribute to higher risk of Alzheimer's disease um, and lifestyle factors as well, such as exercising, can can reduce your risk for developing Alzheimer's. So um, knowing that, that it can possibly be prevented for many of us, but not really funding a lot of research in that area is, is frustrating from what I gather. Um, but at least we know as long as we can try to convey this information to as many people as possible, that your diet and lifestyle do affect your risk level. So let's 
let's not count on that cure. Um, and even if we were, there were a cure, wouldn't it be better to just avoid it altogether? Um, just by changing your lifestyle. And guess what? Lo and behold, it's the same diet that protects your heart. It protects your blood vessels and conditions like diabetes. Um, it protects you from cancer. So what's so great about this way of eating to me is it's not, um, there aren't 10 plans. Here's your plan for Alzheimer's. Here's your plan for diabetes. Here's your plan for, it's one plan. It's one program that can keep you slim. It can keep you energetic. It can keep you uh, heart disease free and reduce your risk for cancer uh, and Alzheimer's. Uh, one plan, really easy. And it's a great plan. Anyone who eats this way can attest to how easy it is, fun it is, delicious it is, um, not expensive it is. So, so to me, that's, that's the good news. Wow. And so what's the evidence around um, the link between diet and Alzheimer's? What sorts of, what sorts of evidence well, exist and what, what do you trust? Yeah, so there's a lot of big research trials um, that look at, I'm trying to remember the specific names. We have a paper actually on our website or some guidelines for uh, Alzheimer's disease prevention at pcrm.org. Um, type in Alzheimer's, and you can find the evidence base for why we would recommend specific to diet, keeping saturated fat and trans fats low, and some of these mineral these uh, minerals that are possibly linked to Alzheimer's as well. Um, but mostly they're population studies. They're looking at big populations um, of people who go on to develop, some of whom go on to develop Alzheimer's, and then analyzing, having kept up with them and their diets, analyzing, well, what did they eat more than this group that didn't develop Alzheimer's? And um, over and over again, it would appear it's, it's those components, which, um, and then there's protective components too. So eating more fruits and vegetables and these high fiber, high antioxidant foods can be protective as well. Is, is there uh, some sort of research or understanding into the potential links? And I realize this isn't, you know, clinical trials, but very often when there's like a scientific hypothesis, the, the lab rats go into the labs and try to figure out like biochemically what the connection could be. Do you, do you happen to know if there's plausibilities around the link between uh, Alzheimer's and, and dietary patterns over a lifetime? Well, I know with the minerals... It's, um, you can go actually, they look at the brains of people who suffered from Alzheimer's uh, in an autopsy. So after they've passed and you can see that there are buildup of these certain minerals like zinc or um, copper in the brain. So that's where they come to the conclusion that, or, or aluminum is speculated also as being associated, but that's how they come to the conclusion of those things being possibly triggering higher risk um, because they're actually embedded in the plaques of, of people's brains who have Alzheimer's disease. Um, the saturated fat and the trans fats, honestly, I'm not sure other than um, just, again, like looking at patterns of people who suffer from this disease the most and what their diets look like. Mm. So what what else is on the PCRM research agenda for the next decade? What uh, what are you working on? Yeah, 
so we're still, you know, we still work a lot with diabetes and we're wrapping up a trial right now in an endocrinologist's office, um, seeing if patients who get a dietary intervention, um, a vegan dietary intervention in an office setting, um, how well they do and, and stick to a program that can help. Uh, reverse the disease. So we're wrapping that up and then we'll probably have maybe a year follow-up with those patients. So that's exciting. And then um, we did recently also wrap up a diabetic neuropathy study. So looking at um, one of the symptoms of diabetes, neuropathy, and seeing if there's no there's no real treatment for neuropathy. There's some medications what on is, the market that are not very effective. What is neuropathy? Yeah, so so when you have diabetes, your blood vessels suffer, um, especially your smaller blood vessels. So that's why vision, where you have very tiny blood vessels in your eyes, vision can go pretty early on. Your kidneys have tiny little blood vessels. They, they suffer when you have diabetes. Um, but so do your peripheral um, limbs, so your fingers, your tips of your fingers, your fingers, your hands, your toes, your feet. Uh, they tend to suffer, and by that I mean you don't get a lot of circulation, and that can manifest in into numbness. It can manifest into pain, um, just sort of an indescribable sensation of um, of pain and numbness. If you, I mean, to hear someone describe, they they sort of sound like ox, oxymorons, but to hear someone describe the combination. <laughs> of that when they're trying to sleep and it hurts so bad you can't even put a sheet on top of your feet. Um, it's a problem. And we've because we have done so much work with people with diabetes, we hear it over and over again, neuropathy, neuropathy, my neuropathy hurts, or um, eventually possibly amputations. Um, so we were just wondering, like, well, what if we just focused on neuropathy and see if it improves with diet? So that's that's the trial we just wrapped up to just focus on the neuropathy side of diabetes. Gotcha. So if someone is uh, suffering from a particular disease and it meets your study inclusion criterion, they will, you, you, they can reach out to you, you can enroll them in a trial and you will help them eat um, in the way that you recommend. What about folks like ordinary people who um, just want guidance and support to transition mm -hmm. to a plant-based, healthier diet. Do you have anything for them? We do. I mean, there's lots of programs out there now, but we have a free online program called the 21-Day Vegan Kickstart, and you can go to 21daykickstart.org and sign up. It starts at the, on the first of every month, um, and it's 21 days of coaching uh, from from celebrities to doctors like Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Uh, McDougall, Dr. Campbell, um, with their tips and resources. It's 21 days worth of breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snack ideas and recipes, uh, videos with cooking demos. So it's kind of a one-stop shop where we email you every day after you sign up and remind you, like, this is why you should be doing this. Here's how it benefits X, Y, and Z. Um, here's the tip of the day. Here's your celebrity of the day. So it's super uh, non-committal. We're not going to come over, but we're just going to email you. And you can do it over and over and over again. There's even a forum where I actually manage the forum, so I'm there to answer questions. But even more 
maybe even more effectively. There's other people doing the Kickstart who who chime in and help, and everybody helps each other. So it's really, really nice, um, free. You can't get much more inexpensive than that. And you can do it over and over. We, you know, if you don't, if you slip the first month, that's okay. Come back the next month. Um, come back. I mean, a lot of people do that. Like this is my third Kickstart. I'm finally, I get it. I'm doing it. This is it. And then they every day start to see um, the changes. And it's pretty whether it's blood glucose control, weight loss, or just wanting to feel better, or just to learn. Maybe someone doesn't even know they necessarily feel bad until they eat, start eating healthfully, and then they're like, oh, I didn't realize my stomach hurt every day. It doesn't, you know, or I didn't realize you could take a bowel movement every day. It's like, yeah, that's what a healthy living is about. Um, so it's pretty fun to stay on the forum and see how well people are doing. Gotcha. So you you mentioned that it'll help you know people um, transition to and adhere to a a vegan diet, not just plant based, but vegan. So you know one one of the the criticisms that I hear of PCRM is that you're a vegan because you're a vegan advocacy organization. Um, your scientific integrity is compromised. That you you know if if you did a study and it showed that eating animals was okay or even beneficial, you would bury it or never publish mm-hmm. it. What what do you what do you say to critics who who question your your motives or, around your science? Yeah. So, well, a if we did, we would publish any of our findings just because if you don't people will know and, and you will get a reputation as not being a very valid organization who does research. So you, the general rules, you publish whatever you find, whether it's neutral, bad, good, whatever. Um, but B, I understand the, the questioning. I mean, I am, I am here at the physician's committee because I'm a dietitian and I believe in the human health benefits of vegan eating, like hands down, that's my motivation for going back to school. That's my motivation for doing this every day, um, for fighting the battle, whether with uh, industry or government or or whomever. Um, It's human health. I just know. I know the benefits. I see it every day. I read about it every day. I want everyone to know. Um, But not everyone knows me and (laughs) knows what my intentions are, and I get that. But I think you just have to look at the research itself, anything we publish, anything we say online about anybody's research uh, is, is cited and referenced and we don't, we don't spout our opinions, um, whatever they may be. We only say what the evidence shows and you can look at our research and do the same. And, and presumably the reason we keep getting published in peer reviewed journals is because we are being ethical about our research. We are presenting the information um, without bias. We make sure we don't have bias in our um, studies, whether it's by blinding the randomization or um, making sure whoever's teaching the control group is um, someone who also eats the way, you know, isn't necessarily vegan. So we, we do everything. We, we overcompensate, let me tell you, about with our, with our um, citations and references and making sure, because we know people are looking for that kind of stuff. So we really do make sure no one can call us out on anything 
Um, but, you know, I also find it interesting that when, if someone says something like, well, you're, you're, you're presenting information on plant-based diets, but because you're plant-based, um, it's going to be skewed somehow. It's like, well, why aren't people then, <laughs> when they see studies about eating uh, low-carb, high meat or paleo or whatever, no one ever says, well, you're biased because you eat meat. No one ever calls out people for being omnivorous, right? Are you an omnivorous researcher? <laughs> well, that's why then... But no, so it's there's a little it's a it's a little unfair, but we're we're like okay. So you want to? It's an uneven playing field. That's fine. We'll just make sure that we um, overcompensate. We can do that pretty easily just by doing it right. So we make sure we do it right the first time. <laughs> That's a great answer, and you know, and of course, you know, no one thinks to call out dairy, studies funded by dairy or or Dannon Group or Cadbury Schweppes. Right. Yeah. I mean, who, every time I go to a conference, uh, like a dietetic conference or a diabetes conference, I'm just astounded, not only at the sponsors of the conference, but those are bad enough, but the individual speakers. And like, I'd like to first thank, you know, the Dairy Institute for having me here. It, to me, it's um, like, wow, I, I do. I scrutinize that research too. I, I want to make sure those researchers are um, not being influenced by their funding. I think that can be really dangerous. Mm. All right. Well, so if folks want to find out more just about PCRM in general, I think the website is PCRM.org. Correct. And the 21-day Kickstart is at 21daykickstart.org. And any other resources yeah. that um, you'd want to point people to, or are, the, are those the place to start? Those are great places to start. I mean, we do have very specific resources for things like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, kids. Um, and you can go to PCRM.org and, and find all that. And most of it's free to download and print or read online. Some We do have books if you really want to master the subject so that you can buy on our website or on Amazon or anywhere else. So, yeah, lots and lots of resources. Cool. Well, Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I hope you got as much out of that interview as I did. And a couple of show notes for the upcoming weeks. We have next week, Kerry Kay, who is an energy healer based in Princeton, New Jersey. And we talk about what we know about energy healing, about the scientific studies that have been done on it and what it really means to receive a healing and what it feels like to give a healing. So if you're curious about that, tune in next week for Carrie Kay. The following week, we have an interview with Ann Bradney, who is the founder and director of the Radical Aliveness Program. And if you're curious about that phrase, and if it sounds pretty good to you, I invite you to tune in. Also a request, if you've been listening to the podcast and enjoying it, I would love it if you would go to iTunes and leave a review. If you haven't yet subscribed via iTunes or Stitcher or RSS or, or anything else, I invite you to do that so you don't have to keep remembering to come back and look for the next show. But also, um, this is a relatively new podcast. It's been on the air for less than a year. I've done a ton of interviews and I'm slowing down now and, and uh, trying to get on a weekly schedule. But if you like it and you think it's something that deserves to be out there in the world, one of the best ways you can help spread the word 
is by giving us a good review on iTunes. So thank you very much if you managed to do that. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Be well, my friends.